Father God, we're just blessed as we come to this time of year where there is so much focus on Jesus Christ. And even though we know out in the world it's just a passing focus, in fact, it's not even a focus, it's often just a passing comment or reference. And yet, to us, he is our Lord, he is King of Kings, he is the one to whom we have become betrothed as the church. And we look forward to the day when the bride of Christ will descend out of heaven to, to the new heaven and the new earth, and we will dwell forever with you. Father, I pray that in our hearts the joy of Christmas will be genuine to the, to the greatest extent, and that we will share that with those around us. And Father, I do pray for those who will be traveling over the holiday time, that you will grant safety, as we often do run into inclement weather. We're grateful for your hand upon Tim and others who have testimony of preservation in the midst of hard, impending uh, disaster. And so, Lord, we trust you for, protect, for protection and strength, and that you'll uh, just guide us through that time. Now, Lord, we ask for your special blessing during this hour. We ask for your anointing as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis chapter 48, verse 17. Genesis 48, 17 to the end of the chapter. When Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on Ephraim's head, it displeased him, and he grasped his father's hand to remove it from Ephraim's head to Manasseh's head. And Joseph said to his father, Not so, my father, for this one is the firstborn. Place your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people. He also shall be great. However, his younger brother shall be greater than he and his descendants shall become a multitude of nations. And he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel shall pronounce a blessing, saying, May God make you like Ephraim and Manasseh. Thus he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. And I give you one portion more than your brothers which I took from the hand of the Amorite with my sword and my bow. Joseph has brought his two sons to his father. The word had come that his father was near death. And so Joseph brought his two sons for the patriarchal blessing. As he brought his two sons, you remember we noted last time that he brought Manasseh up to Jacob's right hand and Ephraim up to Jacob's left hand. But when he gave the blessing, the scripture tells us that Jacob crossed his hands and put his right hand on Ephraim and his left hand on Manasseh. This upset Joseph because the right hand was the hand of the greater blessing according to the way they believed in those days. And as he saw him place that right hand on his younger son's head, he was disturbed because in effect it was like you know, Jacob didn't know what he was doing. Why is he doing this? You remember he was nearly blind because probably cataracts. And therefore, Joseph suspected that he didn't know what he was doing. Now, they put great stock in the blessing. To them, this blessing was very important. 
It wasn't just like, you know, I could say, well, bless you, my son. And uh, we, we had a fellow down in uh, the Bay Area who taught at the uh, cathedral, the crossroads, where we were going to church. And he was always doing that, saying, well, bless you, my son. Well, it's kind of funny because I was older than he, you know, and he's saying, bless you, my son. And, but in, in this instance, they believed it was a serious matter. It was a real thing. And the laying on of hands and the blessing was to be taken seriously. And so Joseph did. But when he tried to remove his father's hand from Ephraim's head and put it on Manasseh's, his father wouldn't yield. And his father refused to give in. And he said, I know, my son, I know what I'm doing here. Now, we noted last time that Scripture doesn't tell us how he knew. Somehow God had spoken to him and he understood that this was the way it was to be. Otherwise, how would he know? Well, as we get into the 49th chapter, we're going to see that God gives to Jacob the power of prophecy, and he prophesies concerning his 12 sons. And he will give the statements that we'll be studying there in the 49th chapter. We noted at the end then that this would prove to be true in the history of Israel. Ephraim would become the greater of the two in terms of the tribal history of Israel. And uh, I noted some passages which tell us that after the kingdom divided, remember Israel went through the whole process of conquering the land, and you read about that in Joshua, and then the period of the judges where God raised up charismatic leaders who would lead them through a difficult time, and, and they had no central government per se because they were supposed to be serving God as their king. It was a theocracy at that time. But eventually they cried out for a king, and so God raised up Samuel and had Samuel anoint Saul, and Saul became the first king, and then because of his sin, he lost the kingship, and God transferred the kingship to David, and then David's son was the inheritor, and then when Solomon died, the kingdom divided, because Solomon's son Rehoboam would simply not follow the truth, and he went his own way. He followed the advice. The scripture is very interesting here. It tells us that he had followed the advice of the young men he had grown up with and refused the advice of the elder counselors of the land. And as a result, Jeroboam, who was a rebel during the days of Solomon, was uh, given the ten northern tribes and they split away. What have we to do with the house of David, they would say. And they would say, every man to his own tent. And so they returned to the north. And that's called the divided kingdom, when you have Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And Israel's capital was at Samaria, and Judah's capital was at Jerusalem. And during that time, the scripture often, especially in the prophets, would refer to the northern kingdom as Ephraim, the land of Ephraim. Oh, Ephraim, the prophets would say, if you had just paid attention to the word of the Lord. And so we see Ephraim promoted above Manasseh, even though Manasseh was the elder son. Jacob indicated the significance of God's blessing by his statement in verse 20, where he says, By you, the nation of Israel shall come to have a saying. And what would that saying be? May God bless you like Ephraim and Manasseh. So, you know, they go around and, and they'd really want to say an important blessing to someone. So they say, well, may God bless you like he's blessed Ephraim and Manasseh. 
And this, of course, would be the result of the fact that God's blessing upon these two sons of Joseph, who, of course, are representative of Joseph, would be so great and so obvious that it would serve as an example to be sought after. God bless you as Ephraim and Manasseh. Of course, to us, who have the whole scripture in our hands, and we know what happened to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh in the long run, we think, well, that's not such a great blessing. <laughs> but we have to think of it early on, in the early history of uh, Israel, up until at least the time of, uh, of David. And then after that, of course, tragedy came upon the land in a greater way than before. In verse 21 of this passage, we find uh, Jacob pronouncing a benediction, if you will, upon Joseph. First, he acknowledges that he's about to die. Jacob makes it clear that these are my final words. This is the blessing of the patriarch because I'm to go be with my fathers. Then secondly, inferred in this, even though it's not explicitly stated, but inferred here is the transfer of the mantle of clan or tribal leadership to Joseph. And that, that's what he's saying here in effect in, in this particular verse. The implication is that I'm going to die and now you, Joseph, have got to pick up the mantle of leadership here and move on. Now, I don't think he was doing this because Joseph was prime minister of the land, most powerful person in, in that part of the world under the Pharaoh. He was doing it because ever since Joseph was born, it was in Jacob's mind that, that this should have been my firstborn in every sense of the word, not just the firstborn of Rachel, but my firstborn altogether. And uh, this, this begins to emerge, particularly as you study through the 49th chapter. In adopting Ephraim and Manasseh as his sons, and by the statements we read that Jacob made, elevating Ephraim and Manasseh to co-equality with Reuben and Simeon, who were the two eldest sons of Jacob, the firstborn of Leah being Reuben, the secondborn being Simeon, Joseph was given by this the double portion of the firstborn. Oh, we read the passage last week or the week before, I can't remember which, where the scripture teaches us that the firstborn was to get a double portion of the inheritance from his father. That was the right of the firstborn. And we see Joseph receiving that in that each of his sons would receive an equal portion with Joseph's brothers. So they became of the twelve, uh, as if they had been born directly to Jacob himself. In this passing of the mantle, there's an important little phrase here. Jacob said, God will be with you. God will be with you. He doesn't say, may God be with you, I hope God will be with you. He says, God will be with you. I mean, he's still prophesying. He knows because God has given to him the understanding that God is going to be with Joseph. And these words, of course, are words of empowerment, but words also of assurance. And that causes me to think, I trust as it does you, that you're holding in your hands such words 
words of assurance to you and to me that God is with us. The very word of God from beginning to end is God's word of assurance that he will be with us. Otherwise, he wouldn't have bothered to give the word. He wants us to know and he wants us to believe that as followers of his, of him, he will be with us. We know, I think, that through our study of Scripture, Joseph had acknowledged that God gave him interpretation of dreams. Now, as, as Tim was pointing out to me after class a couple weeks ago, it doesn't say that specifically in the beginning that Joseph acknowledged God, and, and maybe he didn't. We don't know for sure, but at least he didn't verbalize it so it was reported here. But we do know that at least later in his life, he gave God the credit for giving to him interpretation of dreams. But it is also very interesting that there is no record given in Scripture of God ever directly confronting Joseph. There's no record of Joseph having a theophany or an encounter with God as Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had had. And that's really, to me, very interesting. Because here's Joseph, a man who certainly would seem like David was a man after God's own heart, and yet there's no record in Scripture that God ever appeared to Joseph. What is interesting further is, I think, there is no record in Scripture of God appearing after he appeared to Jacob. Remember when Jacob finally was convinced he should go down to Egypt and move his whole clan down there? He came down from Hebron to Beersheba. And there at Beersheba, the Scripture says God met him. And God said, go on down to Egypt because this is my plan for you and I will be with you. After that theophany, there is no record in Scripture of another theophany until Moses stood before the burning bush. And that's 400 years later or more. That's a very, very long time <laughs> in which there is at least no record of God you know, directly speaking or, or appearing to any of his people. So as you think about that, as we think about that, does that mean that throughout the entire 400 years that Israel was in Egypt, that God directly appeared and directly spoke to no one? Well, that's possible. Uh, at least the scripture is silent about that. Now, I think, though, that there is a, a very significant truth we can extract from this. The fact that the scripture never mentions any direct encounter between God and Joseph does not mean that Joseph was in any way less godly than those three who had literally seen the angel of the Lord or heard his voice. It does not mean that he is inferior in any way. As you look at the life of Joseph, do you feel by reading his life that somehow he's less godly than Abraham or than, than Isaac or than Jacob? <laughs> no, in fact, most of us who read through his life think, this guy hardly ever made a mistake, you know. We, we almost get the impression he was almost more godly than Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. What, what does this say to us? I think it illustrates the fact that true faith is not 
determined by experience, but by belief in God and his word. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. It doesn't say have some kind of metaphysical experience and then you'll be saved. But believe, a simple act of faith in that which you don't see. In fact, Jesus, what did he say to Thomas? You have seen and you believe, but blessed are those who do not see and yet believe. I think it's the absorption of truth and the obedience to that truth, not the duplication of any experience that makes one truly godly. And that should be helpful to us, I think, to, to remember that. The role that faith plays, the role that belief plays, not some kind of spiritual experience. Because there are many groups who believe that the experience you've got to have, you've got to duplicate somebody else's experience or you're really not in. But that's not what Scripture says. If God gives us some kind of a spiritual experience, wonderful. We can be thankful to the Lord. But that's not what determines whether we're His or not. How many people do you know came to know the Lord by being knocked off their donkey on a highway someplace with a voice speaking out of a light brighter than the sun saying, why are you persecuting me? You know, I only know of one, and that was Paul. And uh, probably the rest of us came to the Lord in a much more quiet and less spectacular manner. Jacob's statement in the second half of verse 21, saying that God would bring him, that is Joseph, back to Canaan, I think has to be interpreted in the same way as the passage did back in the 46th chapter where God said so many words to Jacob. You know, go on, go on down to Egypt because I'll be with you and I'll bring you back up again. Well, we know that that didn't mean that God was going to believe, uh, bring the living Jacob person, the person Jacob, back to Canaan because he never came back. His bones did, but he didn't come back. And that was interpreted as meaning that I will bring your family back after the time of the uh, captivity in Egypt. I will bring your family back. And I think that's what it means here too. Because Joseph himself, oh sure, he does go back to Canaan for the moment to bury his father in the cave of Machpelah a little later on. But other than that, he does not go back to live in Canaan. He spends the rest of his life as prime minister in Egypt, living to the age of 110. He will go back in the sense that his bones will be carried and buried there in the northern part of Israel, but he personally will not go back and live in Canaan. So the interpretation of this must be, I believe, also that Ephraim and Manasseh, their children, their grandchildren, their great-grandchildren, down the line, I will bring the whole clan back. In verse 22, we find a statement, I think, which uh, pretty much confirms that, and I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Jacob expressed his faith that God's promise, referring to Canaan, was already a reality. Even though Abraham and Isaac and Jacob were, in effect, sojourners in the land, nomads who lived in tents, 
and, and possessed nothing of the land except the region, the, you know, the field of Ephron, the cave of Machpelah, and, and the piece of property that Joseph had, ja Jacob had purchased up near Shechem. That was it. The rest of the land didn't literally belong to, to them. But he was saying, he was speaking as if it already did belong, as if it already was a reality. Because God's promises are sureties. And if God promises something, you might as well bank on it because it's a reality. We may not experience it at this very moment, but it will be experienced one day. And, and that's really the foundation of all our faith, isn't it? I believe that I am a child of God and that someday I will be in His presence. I don't know that reality now. But the Scripture says God has given to us the Holy Spirit as a down payment, as a surety of of that reality, and one day we will be in his presence. Also, in this 22nd verse, he assigns Joseph a double portion of the land. As recipient of the promise, Jacob, as receiving the promise that came from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob, and was reaffirmed to Isaac and to Jacob by God directly himself. As recipient of that promise, Jacob had the authority to give a double portion to Joseph. He had the authority to do that based on God's word. And we see that that's literally fulfilled in that Ephraim and Manasseh both receive a major portion of the land once the conquest has been complete. Now you may remember the story that in the conquest, some of the tribes wanted to live on the other side. Uh, they had conquered the Amorite kingdoms on, in what is today Jordan, and uh, they wanted to live over there. And one of the groups that lived over there was half of the tribe of Manasseh. So they were the only split tribe, living one side of the Jordan, another half lived on the west side of the Jordan. And then Ephraim inherited the uh, region to the south, uh, a, a large region in the hill country north of of Jerusalem. So we have a, a literal fulfillment of Joseph receiving a double portion in that each of his sons received an equal portion with Reuben and Simeon and Zebulon and Naphtali and, and the other brothers, which shouldn't have been. You know, if you went just by the, the actual sons of, Joseph, of uh, Jacob, Joseph should have, his family should have gotten one piece. But actually, they got a double portion, even as Jacob had promised. Now, there's an interesting word here. And it depends on what version you have in front of you. But he says, I give you one portion more. One portion more. And if you have a, a note there, like my Bible does, for the word portion, it gives ridge or shoulder. Well, the word in the Hebrew is Shechem. <laughs> I will give you Shechem more than the others. One Shechem. Now, Shechem means a ridge or a promontory or a shoulder of land. And Shechem was apparently so named because it's located on the shoulder or the ridge of Mount Gerizim as it comes down into the uh, plain there in the hill country. And uh, so the, the name, which of course was then applied to Hamor's son, he called his son Shechem, a ridge, 
shoulder, come here. <laughs> sort of like you or me, I suppose, naming our kid Redding. <laughs> a Redding. <laughs> but anyway, now Canaan, those of you who have been there or those of you who have seen pictures of it know that there are an awful lot of ridges and shoulders <laughs> in, in, uh, in Canaan. I mean, they're everywhere running down through the mountains. It's a real hilly place. Uh, in fact, most of the nation of Israel is hilly. They don't have an excessive amount of flatland. That's why the coastal plain is so important and why that, that beautiful little pocket of land uh, called the Plain of Israelin, up in the northern part, which you look down from the... If you, if you go to Nazareth and you go a little bit south of Nazareth, you come up to a ridge top and you look down and you look down at this, this plain called the Plain of Israelin. That's why it's really so important to Israel. It's one of the largest flat areas in the land and a place which they have used greatly historically for agriculture. But it's also a place where if we interpret the scripture literally, it says a massive battle will one day be fought because this is the plain of Megiddo, Har-Megeddon or Ar-Megeddon. The word here could just be a figure of speech, meaning I'm just going to give you a little bit more land than your brothers. So it, it could be a generic statement, but I don't think so. I, I think he's referring probably to Shechem and its area specifically, the literal region. And uh, I wanted just to review briefly here, looking back and then looking forward, to the role that Shechem played in this early history of Jacob. Joseph, and then subsequently those who were part of the Israelite nation. In the 33rd chapter, you can remember that. We were there about a year ago, I think. <laughs> Genesis 33, 18 and 19. Now Jacob came safely to the city of Shechem, which is in the land of Canaan, when he came from Pedanarim and camped before the city. And he bought the piece of land where he had pitched his tent from the hand of the sons of Hamor, Shechem's father, for 100 pieces of money. Then he erected there an altar and called it El Elohe Israel. So this is the piece of land that Jacob bought. He wanted a place that he could call his own. He was planning for a while to settle there. He, he didn't seem to be in any hurry to, hurry, to, to go south to Hebron or, or to Beersheba. And so it seems like he wanted to feel like he possessed something. You know, think about poor Jacob. Uh, I mean, Jacob had lived with his father. He got himself in trouble with his brother because he stole his brother's birthright, tricked, deceived his father and, and gotten the blessing. And, and to escape his, the wrath of his brother, he had fled north. And he had lived with his uncle Laban for years, at least 20 years he lived with Laban. And during that time, he had nothing to call his own except, of course, his wives and his children. And even his wives were the sons of his uncle. And his uncle kind of treated him as if, hey, you owe it to me, kid. But finally, he made the deal whereby he would gain part of the flock. And you remember that. All he possessed thus was, unfortunately, four wives, <laughs> all these children, and a bunch of animals, no place to call his own. 
So when he finally comes into the land and he decides he's going to settle here for a while, he wanted something to call his own. So he bought a piece of land at Shechem. And I, I think we can be very understanding of that desire on the part of Jacob. And there he built an altar. And there he cried out to God, the God of his father Israel. I, I mean of, of, of his own name, Israel. His father Isaac, God of Israel. And so, sort of consolidated his focus here in the land. And then in the next chapter, it, it starts to fall apart right away. Well, not right away. There is a time gap uh, between the two chapters. Now Dinah, the daughter of Leah, whom she had borne to Jacob, went out to visit the daughters of the land. When Shechem, the son of Hamor the Hivite, the prince of the land, saw her, he took her and lay with her by force. This, of course, was very upsetting to Jacob and his family. Over in verse 25, we read, Now it came about on the third day. Now, they had made a deal with the Shechemites, remember? Uh, we'll, we'll intermarry with you if uh, you guys become circumcised. So they were circumcised. Now it came about on the third day when they were in pain that two sons, uh, two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, Dinah's brothers, each took his sword and came upon the city unawares and killed every male. They killed Hamor and his son Shechem with the edge of the sword, took Dinah from Shechem's house and went forth. Jacob's sons came upon the slain and looted the city because they had defiled their sister. Uh, as we know, Jacob had only one named daughter. But the use of the word plural later referring to daughters implies that he had other daughters, but there was only one that is named in the account. And she was defiled by the prince of the land, raped. And so her brothers took out their wrath on the men of the city by destroying them. And the city was pillaged. And Jacob's response was that his two sons had acted rashly without considering what his feelings were or even consulting him, and they had made him odious in the eyes, or I suppose you'd say in the noses, of the people of the land. So Shechem wasn't becoming a particularly wonderful place in Jacob's mind. Chapter 35, verse 1, then God said to Jacob, Arise, go up to Bethel, and live there, and make an altar there to God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. So Jacob said to his household and to all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods which are among you, and purify yourselves and change your garments. Let us arise and go up to Bethel, and I will make an, an altar there to God who answered me in the days of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. So they gave Jacob all the foreign gods, the teraphim, which they had, and the rings which were in the ears, and Jacob hid them under the oak which was near Shechem. So Jacob buried all these teraphim, all these little idols, that uh, most of them had been uh, stolen from Laban by Rachel, and he put them in the ground near his camp at Shechem. So the place now becomes actually a place of purging the same time, purging all of the foreign element, all of the idolatry out of his family before he went to meet God again at Bethel. And then in chapter 37, 
in verses 12 and 13, Then his brothers went to pasture their flock, father's flocks, in Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the, pasturing, pasturing the flock in Shechem? Come and I will send you to them. And he said, I will go. So the brothers of Joseph, except for Benjamin, were all up pasturing the sheep back up in the north again from Hebron. If you can always kind of keep a map in your mind, Hebron's to the south in the land. It's at a high point. Hebron's up over 3,000 feet above elevation. And so you kind of come downhill to the north towards Jerusalem and uh, then beyond that over to Shechem. Shechem's at a lower elevation also. And this is where they were pasturing pasturing sheep. And uh, Joseph was sent there to, to find his brothers, and, and we know that the upshot of the whole matter was he'd be sold into captivity, not there at Shechem because they had moved north to Dothan, but nevertheless, he was on his way there. Now, let's move ahead to Joshua chapter 17. Joshua 17, verse 7 this is in, in the, the talking about the division of the land after they had conquered the land. And the border of Manasseh ran from Asher to Michmatha, which was east of Shechem. Then the border went southward to the inhabitants of Entapua. So the city of Shechem was on the border between the land of Manasseh and the land of Ephraim. So it's kind of like in the heart of the land that would belong to Joseph's descendants. So Shechem keeps playing this pivotal role here, if you will. If you move to the end of Joshua, chapter 24, verse 32, Now they buried the bones of Joseph, which the sons of Israel brought up from Egypt at Shechem, in the piece of ground which Jacob had bought from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for 100 pieces of money, and they became the inheritance of Joseph's sons. So it becomes quite an important place as far as the nation is concerned because one of their heroes, especially the hero of Ephraim, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, is buried there. The father of Ephraim and Manasseh will be buried at Shechem. And then finally, we can actually see an, ex, uh, an account in the New Testament that relates to this. In John chapter 4, passage that certainly we all know well, where Jesus meets the woman of Samaria. John 4, first at verses 5 and 6. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that, Joseph gave, that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, was sitting thus by the well. Then in verse 12, you're not, this is the woman responding, of course, in the conversation, you're not greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well and drank of it himself and his sons and his cattle. I think this passage supports a literal interpretation of Shechem in the, in the Genesis passage that we've been looking at. Sychar was located near the site of ancient Shechem. And there is a well there called Jacob's Well. It's called that even today. 
and it's still, you can still draw water out of it. Even today, it's, it's in the, sort of like in the basement of a church, a church that doesn't have any roof on it. And you go down there, and of course, it's like a lot of places in the land. You go down there, and they'll sell you whatever you want to have sold to you. As a uh, priest sits there and kind of guards the well, and uh, you can actually drink water out of the well if you wish. Now, what is interesting is this, there's no passage in Genesis or anywhere else in the Old Testament that tells us of Jacob digging a well there or of drinking from a well there. But this passage in John, as well as tradition, tells us that Jacob was responsible for having a well there. Now, whether he dug it or acquired it, whatever. But it is called Jacob's well. And there's been this long tradition of this being Jacob's well. So you can go there and sit on the edge of Jacob's well if you want. Think about Jacob. It won't be exactly the same water, though. I'm sorry to disappoint you, but uh, <laughs> I don't think we'd want it to be. Let, let me go back to Genesis here. In, in verse 22 of 48, he says at the end, well, he says, I will give you one portion, one, sh one Shechem, the, I'll give you Shechem more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and my bow. Do you remember that? <laughs> Do you remember reading about that? No, I don't think we remember reading about that. Because the scripture tells us that he bought the piece of land from Hamor. So what is it the scripture isn't telling us? Well, first of all, it could be that he had to fight the Amorites in order to buy it from them. And the scripture is silent about that. But what is he probably referring to here? Well, he did buy it, but then his sons wiped out the town. He, by the sword and the bow, killed all the men of the city. They could have kept everything, the city and the whole works, because the scripture does tell us they, they took everything movable that was any value to them, even the people the, who, were, who were not adult males, and took them with them. So there was the application of the sword and the bow in the conquest of, of the city of Shechem, but Jacob himself didn't authorize it or do it, but his sons did it, and so therefore it was his responsibility. It's kind of interesting that the word sword and bow here implies to us that Jacob was not just a man who marched into the land with a staff. And that's it, you know, just came through the land with a staff. And that's all. He could maybe bonk somebody in the head with a staff, but didn't know anything else. He and his family were armed. He and his family had swords and bows and arrows, and the implication is they knew how to use them. Certainly, as Simeon and Levi went into the city, they didn't pull out a sword and say, now, how in the world do I use this thing, you know? Uh, because even in their pain, if somebody sees you coming at him with a sword, they're not going to just say, okay, you know. <laughs> even in pain, they're going to try to defend themselves. I'm reminded of Jim Bowie. Remember at the Alamo, according to the story that's come, on his deathbed, I mean, this guy's all broken up, half dead, and they come in there and he uses his guns and his, and his knife and there's half a dozen dead people around him even while he's on his bed, hardly able to even move. So the sons of Shechem, uh, I mean of Hamor, Shechem and, and the rest of them probably didn't just lie around and let him kill him. So they had to know what to do and how to do it. They had to know how to use these swords. So 
they, they were acquainted with the uh, use of military weapons and they knew how to uh, operate them. It's possible, it's possible that Jacob and his sons participated in battles not recorded in Scripture. Is it not? I think so. Because as you study through Scripture, you find there's, there are large gaps in the story of Jacob about which the Scripture is silent. Years would pass in which the Scripture doesn't say anything. It's not a blow-by-blow account of the life of Jacob. Because God's, God's intent is to show those truths which make a difference in the eternal plan that God has put into operation. And so it's possible that Jacob and his sons participated in some battles at some point once they were in the land that that are not recorded in in Scripture. Well, that brings us to chapter 49. Let me just read the first couple of verses and and we'll stop with that. No use plunging into it when uh, it's this late. But uh, what we have, of course, in the 49th chapter of Genesis is... Israel's blessing and prophecy concerning his sons. Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what shall befall you in the days to come. Gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel, your father. Next week I want to take a moment to look specifically at that second verse because it really tells us a lot about Jacob on his dying in his dying hours in in, did I say the right person? Jacob in in his dying hours here in the way this is um, is worded. 